Today's guest is a historian, public speaker, and a New York Times best-selling author of books primarily about World War II. His story of the Liberator became the basis for the popular Netflix series. Author Alex Kershaw is here with a new book, and I'll speak with him next. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. Welcome back. His latest book is called Against All Odds, A True Story of Ultimate Courage and Survival in World War II. And author Alex Kershaw joins us now. Alex, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. How are you? I'm doing very well, sir, and congratulations on this book. It looks amazing. I know you've released this book to coincide with a, a national day. Could you tell us a little bit about the national day that this book is coinciding with? Yeah, the 25th of March is National Medal of Honor Day. So basically it's there to make everybody try and remember uh, the valor and sacrifice of, of uh, Medal of Honor uh, recipients. And let's not forget that most, the majority of Medal of Honor recipients, uh, you know, they, they received their medal, medal posthumously. They weren't alive to have that hung around their neck. So I think also the day is there to remind people of the values that that uh, those those guys had, you know, that they put others before themselves. They were prepared to sacrifice their lives for other people. They had a spirit of of um, patriotism and community. They they were they they gave everything to in World War Two. Certainly, they gave everything to liberate countless millions of Europeans like me. So, it's just a great day to remind people that there are enormously courageous people out there that are prepared to put their lives on their line for their country and and what they believe in. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Now these four men that you write about in the book, they're all from the third ID, Infantry yeah. Division. Could you paint a picture of that division for us to give an idea for the listeners what, uh, what that division was like? Uh, the division was uh, the only, you know, it was the only division to go all the way from the beginning to the end of the war in Europe from North Africa, and they actually liberated Berchtesgaden right at the end. Um, so, you know, November 1942 to May 1945, they had the highest number of casualties of any American division that served in World War II in Europe, um, and fought for longer than any other division uh, in Europe. I think the second longest was the 45th Infantry Division, the Thunderbird Division. Mm. and. Interestingly, and this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, they had more Medal of Honor recipients than any other division in Europe. So by the end of the war, you had 90, I think 90 infantry divisions in Europe. And the third ID accounted for almost a tenth of the medals given in the European theater. So that, that, that says a lot. It does. And, and what it really says is that they were just in a hell of a lot of battles and a lot, lost a hell of a lot of guys. And they just had more opportunity, tragically, to, to win more medals, you know, to earn more medals. Um, but they were also really well led. They had, uh, in particular, they had Lucien Truscott as a commanding general from Sicily all the way through right until the end of the fall of 1944. So most of the really hard fighting was done under Truscott. And he was a hell of a general. He was a sort of Patton-esque figure, loved his men, loved by his men, tough, very uh, just an outstanding humanitarian that, that that made hard decisions and was very aggressive. So um, they're nicknamed the Marne Men. You know, to this day they're called Marne Men. I, mm -hmm. I live in Savannah. The Third ID is based 
part of the third ID. It's based at Fort Stewart, not far from me. And they earned their nickname, the Marne Men, from World War One, when they'd fought on the Marne and halted the German attack on, you know, on a, you know really brutal German attack on that was aimed at Paris. They they held them up on the Marne in 1918, and that, that's that they were forever known as the Marne Men after that. Um, Eisenhower had served in the Third ID. I believe Marshall at some point had been in the Third ID. This is before World War II, obviously. Right. Um, and uh, you know, to this day, I have a very, very uh, good reputation in the military. I mean, they're not as well known as they should be for World War II, considering what they achieved. But um, the 101st Airborne's bagged all that glory. 29th Division, you know, other other units. Uh, the fourth ID, you could argue, is more famous than the third. But uh, you know, they were first into Baghdad in Operation Iraqi Freedom. I mean, it just you know, there's a, a saying amongst the third ID that if you want a tough job done, you get the third ID to do it. And <laughs> that was, you know, sorry to all the other divisions, but certainly you could say that that was uh, you know they had a, a lot of tough jobs in World War Two. You know, first day Sicily. Uh, southern, southern Italy is Salerno, and then you have Anzio uh, climbing, you know, uh, Operation Dragoon, which was actually a very successful operation, very, very few casualties in August of 1944. But then you get into the, the Vosges Mountains, you get the ba- Battle of the Colmar Pocket, Nuremberg. These were all very bloody battles that the Third ID was at the heart of, and you know, they, they, they definitely earned their medals. And when they were moving up uh, the Italy p- Peninsula, did, did they move into Europe at a certain point after the Gothic line was broken? Yeah, they were at, uh, you know, after Anzio and the breakout of Anzio. So the breakout of Anzio was May 1944. They uh, went into reserve, or rather had, had some kind of R&R. Um, and then they were, so you, that's, uh, you know, Middle of June, 1944, they come off the line. And then uh, August the 15th of 1944, they're landing on the Cote d'Azur for Operation Dagoon. So, you know, not too long to recover from no. what had already been a very long time in combat. You got to remember that the third ID first saw action in you know, November, 1942. So uh, they'd, they'd, they'd come a long way by the time they even got to the, the, the south of France. Absolutely. And still had, still had a long way to go. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to Germany. Yeah. That's the Berkshire's sure. gone. <laughs> yeah. Now, you write about four men, and uh, one of them, uh, Audie Murphy, is, is more well-known than the others. But could you give us a biographical sketch of, of, of these men briefly? Um, Audie Murphy had a company commander, so when Audie Murphy landed in Sicily, 10th of July, 1943, his company commander was a guy called Keith Ware, uh, B Company commander, 15th ID, 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd ID. And Ware had had a very tough upbringing. His father had died when he was pretty young. Um, first draftee to ever become a general officer, uh, first draftee in American history to become mm-hmm. a general officer. To this day, there's only been one in history, and that's uh, uh, Keith Ware. That's amazing. Uh, so he... Um, Ended up the started off as a, a captain, um, and then became a uh, battalion commander. He earned the Medal of Honor as a battalion commander, as a lieutenant colonel in January, <laughs> sorry, late December of 1944. Uh, stayed in the army, 
commanded the big red one in Vietnam and was shut, his helicopter was shot down and he was killed in 1968, age 53. Mm. Um, you know, Morris Britt, uh, very hard upbringing, the depression, you know, same thing, had to work very hard. Father died at a relatively young age. Um, played for the Detroit Lions in the NFL, superb athlete. Um, first guy in American, first guy in the World War II, I should say, to to win every medal, to earn a to earn every medal, bronze star, silver star, DSC medal of honor. And when he came back after he had his arm blown off at Anzio, uh, he came back to the U.S. in 1944 and he was a, a superstar. He was a you know an athlete, a professional athlete. And, but also the first guy to in World War II to, to gain every medal. So went back to Arkansas and was a, a total superstar, you know. Um, he, he looked he looked the part. He looked like a yeah, yeah. He was so you know <laughs> it moved you know typecast to be a, a superhero. Yeah, and, uh, In fact, you know he was. <laughs> I mean, it's like <laughs> sorry to say, but if you're the first guy to, and if you look at what the way that he did it, uh, the way that he earned the medals. Uh, you know, my God, was he a, a superstar on the battlefield and an athlete, a, a great athlete off it. And then the only guy we haven't talked about uh, is Michael Daly, who was uh, first day of combat, dropped out of West Point to go and become a grunt and was a private the first day he landed. First day he was in combat was Omaha Beach on June the 6th, 1944. And wow. fought all the way through, you know, was a 20-year-old company commander and... Uh, was 20 years old when he earned the Medal of Honor in Nuremberg, you know, like a week or two from the end of the war. I took out four or five machine gun nests in very intense street fighting in in uh, Nuremberg and then was shot through the face the next day and uh, almost killed. Um, so, yeah, he was, uh, you know, came back and he, he was still 20 years old when he received the Medal of Honor in the White House from Truman. Uh, Amazing. Turned, he wasn't even 21 after he'd been in over a year of combat, almost a year of combat rather, and received, I think, three silver stars, certainly the Medal of Honor. And, uh, you know, it was, wasn't even 21 when he returned to civilian life. So, yeah, we, we forget that these guys were extremely young. Yeah, you, you do forget that. Um, you just assume that they were, I don't know. 2830 <laughs> <laughs> weren't very they were all officers there weren't many there were some 28 year olds but not not many right i think i think 28 if you had a family was the cutoff point where you you didn't have to go and serve in the front lines i think there was a, a i think they may have dropped that rule i don't know what i'm talking about but 28 was old you know 28 was old you were a grandpa in world war ii <laughs> yeah if, if you weren't an officer you know we'll be back to the conversation in a moment Excellent. Okay. On, the, on the B, we'll just do a slower pace. Okay, sure. Here we go. The principal change to impact the crew, however, came in the form of a new commanding officer, Captain Leslie Edward Garys. Producer uh, Joe Small and uh, producer director Rob Childs come to me and say, look, uh, how about if you use your dulcet tones to, uh, to tell us to tell the Franklin story? And I said, sure. As I began to look through the story, and as Rob and Joe kept sending me more and more material, uh, this thing was peeling like an onion. I was, I was seeing more and more and more of a really, really important story in naval history, uh, and one which hasn't been, hadn't been told. 
So, uh, they, you know, they had to uh, throw a two-inch heaving line on me to keep me from charging right down here to the, uh, to the studio and, and helping to put this together. Captain Dale Dye narrates USS Franklin, Honor Restored. Available now on Amazon Prime. What was the catalyst that made you want to write this book about these four men? Uh, I went and interviewed Bob Maxwell, who out in Oregon in 2019. And at the time, he was the oldest living Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. I think there were four guys still alive. Only one now, Woody Williams, who, mm. uh, the Iwo Jima hero. Uh, so you think about that. I think 472 Medals of Honor from World War II and only one left. Yeah. That shows you where we are right now. It's incredible. So anyway, I, I went out to see Bob Maxwell, and he was really, obviously, an amazing, humble guy, very, very religious, super religious, and uh, third ID. And he told me a lot about the third ID and told me that they had this number of recipients. And I thought, if I told the story of the third ID in World War II, you know, I could tell the story from the beginning and the end of the liberation, it, and I could tell the story about, you know, what arguably the finest infantry division of World War II in Europe. And uh, by picking these four guys, I give you four people to root for, uh, four people that, you know, they, one of them, Brit, was there at the beginning, and they went, they were in every major battle except, I think, the Battle of Bulge uh, in World War II during the liberation. So they were in, you know, North Africa, Sicily, Italy, uh, Battle of Normandy, um, Market Garden. They weren't in Market Garden. So Battle of Bulge and Market yeah. Garden were the only two really major battles that these guys weren't involved in. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was a really interesting way of, of, of showing an enormous amount of heroism, but also shining a light on the guys around them and the, the, um, the guys that, you know, the, I think it was over well over a million Americans saw a, a actual combat in the European theater in World War II well over a million that were actually yeah. at the sharp end, not in supply positions or, you know, behind the front lines. I think there were around about a million that actually got shot at in World in War combat. II. In combat. In right. combat. Yeah. You know, of the 16 million Americans in uniform in World War II, you know, less than 5% actually had their lives on the line in the front lines. And, uh, um, you know, of that small percentage, an even smaller percentage actually got the job done by actually attacking the enemy and taking out tanks and doing things that earned you medals that, you know, people all served with, they did their best. They were trying to just get through this nightmare. They're right. trying to stay alive. But some individuals actually went beyond that, went way beyond the call of duty, way, way beyond what you could expect ordinary soldiers to do. And they were the ones that made a big difference often. They made big difference in attacks and, taking positions and winning battles. You needed, I'll give you a perfect example. I won't go on too long. Omaha Beach, you know, you got 30,000 guys, odd guys there landed there on June the 6th. You could probably boil it down to maybe two, 300 men that made a big difference that got them off the beach, that led people off the beach, that, that took out the enemy positions that turned the tide of that battle. So right. it just goes to show that when it comes to numbers, there's, it's a small number that make a big difference. People follow on behind, people do their jobs, but actually getting out of a foxhole, risking your life, moving towards the enemy fire, taking out the enemy positions, et cetera, doing the job that you're told to do, it's a small number, but a very valuable number. 
And that's why the Medal of Honor and other medals, but particularly the Medal of Honor, is important because it recognizes people that go way beyond what we normally expect. And in going way beyond, they achieve incredible things. They save a lot of lives, number one, and they achieve the objective, which is to win, which is to destroy the enemy and to move forward and to win. So each of the guys I write about, every one of their actions, the actions they performed to gain the Medal of Honor saved a lot of lives. If they hadn't done what they did, a lot of guys would have died. Right. And that was their primary motivation. They weren't thinking, I'm going to get a medal. I'm going to be in the headlines. They were thinking, there's a hell of a lot of guys around me that I love, that I'm responsible for, that I've got to save their lives. And it was instinctual. It wasn't like, I'm going to have to do this. Now it was just like, boom, i got to do it. In, in a couple of cases, you know, in Ware's case, he made a very conscious decision to, to, to get the job done because he, his guys were pinned down and they wouldn't move. You know, they, he, he had to show them how to do it. So as a, a battalion commander, lieutenant colonel in Siegelsheim, he actually picked up a BAR and with a tank went ahead of his guys and showed them how to lay down fire on machine gun positions. He led the way, showed the guys that this could be done, and they did the job, but only by him showing them how to do it. So he received the Medal of, of Honor for that action. But again, if they hadn't done the job, they'd have been trapped and slowly massacred by the Germans because they were pinned down. If they didn't do what where I showed them what to do, a lot more guys would have lost their lives. They would got definitely <laughs> the point of the spear. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when these men came home in your research, did you find that uh, the Medal of Honor, of course, is, is somewhat of a burden? It's uh, for the rest of your life, you're you have this medal that's obviously uh, revered, but it, it's a, a burden to carry because you're always called a hero. And, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's a tough it's, adjustment in civilian life. Did you find that these men had a tough adjustment? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, every one of them felt uncomfortable at some point, at some stage, with the medal. Um, they felt a lot of survivor's guilt. Uh, every one of them said that, you know, there were lots of guys back there in Europe that are in graves that did way more amazing things than I did. Murphy said that they were the real heroes are the ones left behind. Now, you know, you, you had to be, you had to, to gain the Medal of Honor, there had to be eyewitnesses. You had to have a recommendation, usually by an officer, obviously, that, of some kind of seniority. So, you know, Murphy's case, Keith Ware actually made one of the recommendations for hmm. the medal. Um, but there were a lot of guys that didn't, they didn't get seen. They were dead before they got seen. Uh, they'd done things, or rather I should say that they'd done things which were incredible that, that people didn't see, or there weren't enough eyewitnesses, or the eyewitnesses were killed later. <coughs> Omaha Beach. People saw incredible things, but 900 guys were killed in Omaha Beach. If you were in that first wave, you saw astonishing things, but you were probably killed too. So there wasn't an eyewitness report. Right. So the burden, you know, Bob Maxwell, who I interviewed, said that that, that medal had weighed heavy. You're expected to be a superhero for the rest of your life. You, you can't get a speeding ticket. You can't get drunk in public. You can't get drunk in a bar and behave badly. You, can't, <laughs> you know, if you get divorced, everyone knows about it. I don't know. I mean, you're expected to behave at a level that, these guys in the war didn't behave like that. You know, before sure. the war, they didn't behave like that. They, they didn't want the Medal of Honor. They weren't looking for the Medal of Honor. They, they were 
they were just blessed that they lived and survived and came home, you know? And then they have this this permanent badge put around their neck that defines them as being different to everybody else. And they don't feel any different. You know, they 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 feel different to a lot of people because they're deeply wounded. Right. They've been through a lot of trauma. So, you know, for some people, you know, I've come across cases where Medal of Honor recipients have said when they're in the White House and the president, you know, hangs the, the medal around their neck, it's the best day of their life. But no, it's not. It's It reminds them of the worst day of their life when a lot of their friends were killed. Right. You know, that's why you see they're so emotional, why they're in tears, why it's a painful experience for so, so many of them because they're there and so many people aren't there, you know? And, you know, um, every Memorial Day or rather every Veterans Day, you know, Michael Daly, who we've talked about, you know, he, he wanted to be alone a lot of that day. He would go to the yeah. ceremony, etc. And he wanted to be alone with his memories because he just remembered all the guys that didn't come back, the young kids that he'd commanded that had, hadn't made it, you know, and they hadn't made it because they were just unlucky, you know, because most people, most people, people, people I think you recognize that absolutely. Um, but a lot of people don't recognize the fact that the vast majority of infantrymen in World War II were always unlucky. Right. You know, your chances of making it to the end were very slim. You were going to be killed or wounded at some point, and they knew it. So you were, you, your, your fate was to be unlucky. I mean, yeah. you, you were going to buy it. You were going to get it sooner or later. So no one came out of that without wounds of some kind. And certainly Medal of Honor recipients just knew exactly how extraordinarily, if they're alive, extraordinarily lucky they were to, to, to be in one piece at the end of it, let alone have a medal. That, uh, that reminds me of um, speaking with Jared Frederick about his book, Hang Tough, about Dick Winters, where yeah. the letters that Winters, and most people don't know this, later in the war, he wrote letters home to a, a pen pal where he doubted that he was going to make it through the rest of the war. And... Um, he didn't win. He didn't receive the Medal of Honor, but he had his own doubts. Uh, you know, a commander like that. But also, on with the Medal of Honor, the story of these men remind me of Vernon Baker, who felt a, a heavy obligation. He's a Medal of Honor recipient, and he went up the hill to uh, attack a, a castle stronghold with 26 men, and he lost 19. And uh, he was the only recipient, black recipient of the Medal of Honor, who survived to receive the medal in person. So it is a heavy burden, uh, absolutely. Was there one quality you found, though, that was similar in all these men that elevated them, something unspoken that, uh, that you picked up on, that uh, set them apart? They, um, they were totally selfless and they didn't care whether they lived or died. They cared more about getting the job done and saving their men and looking after their men. They had absolutely selfless at every point. They, there was no ego. Hmm. They, uh, they had a cause they believed in that was greater than themselves. That was defeating Nazism. But most importantly, and I think more personally, it was about keeping their men alive any way they could. And 
taken as many home as they could if possible. And if that meant them sacrificing themselves so that those guys could go home, so that fewer, fewer and fewer of them could, could be killed, that's what they do. That's what they did. They, um, they lived in the moment every day, day to day. They didn't think about the long-term future. They couldn't afford to. It was just about here and now and doing whatever they could to help other people around them. Amazing and a fantastic way to close. The book is called Against All Odds. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks. It's great to, great to see you. Real pleasure to see you as well, sir. It's, uh, we, we do it again. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be New York Times bestselling author J.D. Dickey discussing his new book, The Republic of Violence, The Tormented Rise of Abolition in Andrew Jackson's America. It became a very violent era, violent at the ballot box, as well as violence in the streets. Uh, it was perhaps the most violent time in America outside of warfare. And not surprisingly, alcohol fueled a lot of this. Uh, I read a statistic that the average American consumed five gallons of spirits a year, which is double the current rate. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. You can find me on Twitter, at Rob Child, where you can share your comments about the show. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.